Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In 2014, when I launched this podcast with Chris Mooney, our 39th episode featured child prodigy, mathematician, and novelist Jordan Ellenberg. Chris Mooney interviewed him because he had just written a book called How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, in which he made the case that calculations weren't just about numbers. They were a way of thinking about everything from politics to poetry. Now he's just released his next book, this time applying his out-of-the-box thinking to geometry and opening up the world of shapes, which he calls the hidden geometry of information. It's only fitting that we have him back on the show seven years later for our 351st episode, which happens to be 9 times 39. Let's take a short break, and then we'll hear more from Jordan Ellenberg. Jordan Ellenberg, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you for having me on. So I'm so excited to talk to you about geometry, in part because in your book, you describe how this is not something that you were good at to begin with. Um, but I felt like geometry was, I'm, I'm one of those people, you kind of describe it like cilantro. You either love it or you hate it, but no one's neutral, right? <laughs> so I love both cilantro and geometry. And I was, you know, I hate cilantro. I've gotten <laughs> used to it over the years. And actually, I never thought of it. My attitude towards geometry is much the same. I sort of started out being one of the haters and I've sort of come to, uh, to like it and even use it, as you can see in the book. So you're a mathematician, though. Uh, and so but obviously, it's not, geometry is not something that that spoke to you in the beginning. So can you tell us, like, what is geometry? How should we think about it? Yeah, I mean, because it's the word is used so many different ways. And I think most people, their encounter with formal geometry ends in the ninth grade. And they're like, there was definitely a triangle involved, right? That's the, that's yep. the memory. <laughs> and that is part of it. You know, I lead, I have triangles in the beginning of the book, because I don't want people to feel robbed of their triangles. But, <laughs> you know, in modern terminology, geometry is so much more than that. And in some sense, always has been. I mean, the word itself, right? It means like measuring the earth. That's the, that's a geos and meter means measuring the earth. And any time that we're doing something that involves notions of distance, notions of nearness or farness, we're fundamentally thinking geometrically. I mean, we do it when we talk about a close friend or a distant relative, right? Those actually mean different things. Like what you mean when you say a close relative is like 
how far back you have to go in the family tree to connect you to them. When you say a close friend, you mean something much more emotional. I, I mean, when you say like a nearby town, you mean something different again. You mean something in terms of the geography of the earth. And yet there's something all three of those relations have in common, and that's the underlying geometry. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting to think about how we model the world too, kind of on the basis of these kind of geometrical ideas just in our own heads. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, what else could we do, right? We are geometric beings. We live in space. We move in space. We think of things in terms of, you know, where things are and what they look like and how they're moving. Those are all geometric notions. This got me to wondering, you know, I I understand it obviously depends on how you were taught and what you got out of geometry that, you know, the, the cilantro problem, once again, why some people hate it. But I, I also think that there, the, the, one of the reasons I like geometry is because it kind of helped me teach me sort of how to deduce things, how to, how to form an argument and come to a logical conclusion. And so why is that a part of geometry? Well, part of it is just tradition, because, of course, there is the idea of proof is in every part of mathematics, not just geometry. But it, but traditionally, the first place that we saw this idea that things should be deduced rigorously, starting from some small set of axioms and everything else built up by pure reason, historically in math, that comes from Euclid. And so that it became a very like longstanding tradition that this was the means by which we taught students what it means to prove. Now, I got to say, we've come a long way. You know, if you go back to the 19th century, a lot of times what that meant is students were taught to memorize Euclid and recite it and be able to produce Euclid's demonstrations and Euclid's proofs from memory. Well, nowadays, we don't really see that as a great pedagogical strategy, right? We are trying to help the students learn to be little Euclid's and like sort of come up with proofs on on their own. There's a great thing I found in the book where they did a survey in the 50s of American high school teachers saying, like, why are you teaching geometry anyway? so that students will learn something about geometry, like learn basic facts about triangles and circles and lines. That did okay, but that was number two. Number one was exactly what you say. They said, we're teaching it so that students understand how to think clearly and reason step by step. Yeah, now there's this whole like show your work kind of, you know, approach to mathematics and teaching mathematics. In fact, so much so that a lot of parents of children like can't do their homework for them anymore because it's a totally different way of showing work. Yeah, I actually spent the last three days like helping my son prep for the calculus AP exam. So I'm very, I'm, I'm very immersed at this moment in like being that parent and like sort of engaging with the current mode of the high school curriculum. So, so just between you and me, were there any questions that you as a professional mathematician could not answer? I would say there was some I had to remember how to <laughs> right. do. Okay, I had good. to remember what the integral of tangent was. Excellent. That makes those of us who are not mathematicians but have children feel much better about ourselves. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. So tell us a little bit, though, about the impetus for writing this book. You know, it's a new way of looking at the influence that geometry has in terms of our, our lives. So, so what first got you started thinking that there was a book length idea in that? Well, it's a good question. And my way of writing books, I don't know if I can recommend it to you or any other writer out there, because it's not exactly organized. It's more like there's sort of some huge cloud of stuff that I'm excited to write about and talk about. And then I'm like, well, if all this stuff is coming to my mind at the same time of my life, there must be some connecting thread that I've just got to understand. And so I came to see that, you know, so I sort of I wanted to write about gerrymandering and redistricting. I wanted to write about 
top level championship checkers, which I've kind of obsessed with. Like I wanted to write about AI and all the exciting developments there. And I'm like, why the hell am I thinking about all these things together? It makes sense to me in my mind. So if it makes sense, there has to be a thematic unity that draws them together. And then I started to see, oh, they're all geometric. That's the kind of common ground. And then actually, once you find that, I feel like you're blanching because you're like, this seems like the worst possible way to write a book. But I promise it does really work. (laughs) It's very confusing at times. And then once you realize that that fundamental connection is there, then just writing it out and researching those connections just deepen and deepen and deepen until there's these threads that go through the whole book, the threads of, you know, Henri Poincaré, this kind of miraculous French geometer and his ideas and his incredible slogans. You know, he's the most quotable mathematician that there ever was. Probably like mathematics is the art of calling different things by the same name. That's like a koan, man. I'm sure it sounds even better in French. Um, (laughs) You know, the idea of the random walk and this fundamentally geometric way of exploring spaces, including crazy abstract spaces like the space of all algorithms that you see, you see in AI, like the same ideas just sort of come back again and again. And all these sort of apparently disparate things that I wanted to write about. I mean, I actually think that's in some ways the only reason to write a book, uh, you know, otherwise it's an article or a series of articles, right? Is that, is that you want to find that that thread and that fundamental conclusion, ultimately, that's like, you know, so so I commend you, you know, for, for doing that. And, uh, you know, the, the first thing that that got me interested in in your book, too, is this gerrymandering idea and how geometry has such a huge impact on our democracy. And so, you know, in fact, one of your chapters is called How Math Broke Democracy and Might Still Save It in parentheses. So, so let's talk a little bit about redistricting and gerrymandering. What, what's going on and how is math essentially involved here? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you read out the title because somebody else I was talking to said, so you say like math can save democracy. How does that work? And I kind of wanted to say, like, <laughs> well, I said might. I don't want to be a downer, but I did say might, you know, I'm an academic. So we try not to like oversell and make claims we can't justify. But yeah, that's an amazing story. And it's one that lots of mathematicians have gotten involved with because it is a problem just of such huge. Let me back up and say what it is, because probably not everybody is as immersed in the process of drawing legislative districts as I might be or maybe you are, too, that You know, the way our system of representative democracy works in the United States is that we carve up each state into patches of land, either for the House of Representatives or even smaller patches for state legislatures. And, you know, these patches of land are like kind of meaningless. They don't have identities. Like, do you even know like what legislative district you live in in California? Could you name it? I think it's District 5, but that might be my city. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot. I live in 77. I know that because I spent a lot of time looking at the district maps, but I didn't know that before I started (laughs) doing this. Right. So nobody has like a T-shirt of District 77 of Wisconsin, right? It's just (laughs) lines drawn on the map. It's not like a meaningful political entity. And because it's not a politically meaningful entity, they change them all the time. And that process of redistricting, that process of drawing new lines is something which is like, seems kind of technical and involves a lot of maps and spreadsheets and people have historically not paid too much attention to it. And that has all changed because we now understand something that we kind of vaguely knew before, but not in so much focus, that whoever draws those maps actually has a huge amount of power over who gets elected to the legislature. So then you ask, well, wow, whoever does it has a lot of power. Who is it? Well, in a lot of states, including Wisconsin, it's the legislators themselves. Well, that is literally the worst possible system, right? We're essentially... Instead of having the voters choose the legislators, we're essentially having the legislators choose their voters. So this has a huge effect 
But then you can ask, well, how much of an effect and what should we do instead? And then you get into this like absolutely fascinating stew of math and politics and law. And I think what I like about the problem is that it's not a math problem, but it's also not not a math problem. You know what I mean? If you just try to reduce it to math, you're going to get very dumb answers. You're going to be like, well, why can't we just draw a nice square grid across the state and have those be the districts? And there's like 10,000 reasons. That's a terrible idea. On the other hand, historically, what people have mostly done is treated it as a law and a politics problem without trying to actually do any mathematical analysis of what the effects of gerrymandering actually are. And honestly, I think that has been kind of a sterile enterprise too. And what's happened over the last few years is this really cool body of work where we really try to see all the strands together and figure out a way to get this done that is legally and politically and mathematically sound. So yeah, talk to us a little bit. Like, let's get into the weeds. What, what, what's the solution here? Or Oh, is that what we're going to do? Okay, let's do it. Yeah. So the fundamental principle is this. I think a lot of work in the past that hasn't really worked is to try to figure out what's the right answer What's the right districting? How are we going to get gerrymandering to zero? What is the perfectly fair way to do it? Well, life cannot be perfectly fair. We're talking about human beings here. And we're talking about sort of having a process with a lot of actors who want to have a say and who in our system have a right to have a say, who should have a say. You know, this is why, for instance, we don't just say, let the computer draw the maps. I mean, every mathematician who starts thinking about this is first is like, well, let's figure out how to have a computer draw the maps. And then if you say this to a judge, they'll like pee their pants laughing, right? Because that's not going to be politically acceptable. Yeah. It's probably not legal. Like, I mean, nobody wants this. Nobody wants to sort of hand the job over to the machine. The role the machine has is the following. It's not that we're trying to achieve some perfect and unachievable standard of fairness. It's that we want to understand, speaking loosely, what would have happened if the maps had been drawn by somebody who wasn't trying to thumb the scale as far as they possibly could in the direction of one party or another. Now, that's a counterfactual, right? And counterfactuals are hard. Like, what would have happened in some alternate universe where politicians are not as dirty as we know them, in fact, to be? But what's cool is that you actually can do this. You know, where are you going to find a perfectly neutral party who doesn't, like, a perfectly neutral line drawer who doesn't care which party wins? Well, you program one. That you can do. So you can get a computer to draw a map, and if you don't tell the computer to favor one party over the other, it won't. So then you have a map. So what? Like, what role does it have? Well, now you can do more. You can do that and then do it 20,000 times. And you never get the same map twice because some randomness is built in. There's lots of choices. There's no right answer or wrong answer. It's just a choice. The machine makes those choices at random, but it makes them without any built-in partisan bias because you didn't give it any. And then you can start to see this principle that there is no right answer. There's no right answer to how many legislative seats Republicans should have in Wisconsin or Democrats should have in California. There's a range of answers. Different choices the computer makes will give different answers. You know, some answers are more common than others. And there's this very nice kind of bell curve looking doohickey, which is sort of humped in the middle. And then what you see is that the maps that we actually have are not in that range. They're like way out there. So you can like run 20,000 random maps and you will never see one as grievously gerrymandered as the maps that these legislators actually draw. And that's the role that the machines have. They're not telling you what to do. They're not the player. They're the referee, right? They're telling you what's out of bounds. Yeah, right, right. So let's say we have a, a, a you know, a, a model like this and and we know what, what the other sort of 20,000 non-gerrymandered <laughs> maps should look like. 
how do you propose that this should be then applied? Like, how do you then pick one of those? Do you just pick them up at, at random? Do you think that, like, where does the politics come in or come back in, I should say? I think in the end, we are not going to use an automatically generated map. I don't think that's politically feasible. I think what we're going to say is we're going to use a human generated map, which the computer doesn't barf when it sees. <laughs> right. That's kind of what we're going for. Because I think you have to concede that it is a political process. It is a process where people are going to try to cook it in a million different ways. They're going to try to get advantage for some party, or they may try to get some advantage for themselves. Like Maybe I want a safe district for myself. I don't care about my party. I want a safe district for myself because I don't like campaigning because it's a pain. And I like living in a district that's 70% my party. So I know I don't have to do any work to keep on getting reelected again and again. I mean, you know, politicians are lazy, like just like the rest of us, right? So I don't think you can or should take humanity out of the process. And I don't think you can expect it to be perfectly fair, but I think we can put some bounds around how unfair they can be. Because by doing so, you create political space for reasonable compromises. Right now, we don't have that. Right now, the Republican Party in Wisconsin for drawing these maps as gerrymandered as they possibly can because there's no limits, that gain to them is so great that, you know, they almost, I think they reasonably, how can they not do it? You can see it in the memos that I quote some of them in the book that came out in the depositions. Like they say, we have an obligation to do this because we have the opportunity to do it. You take away the opportunity, say, okay, you're probably going to gerrymander, but come on, not that much. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's room for a little bit more good government. You know what I mean? There's a room for a little bit like, okay, given that we don't have the opportunity to like make it insanely unfair, only moderately unfair, we might as well do it right. Yeah. So what you're suggesting is like, let the computer set the boundaries, not of each district, but rather of like how much of a district can be gerrymandered, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And actually, you see me doing it. Remember, we said like, you just use this geometric language, whether you want to or not. So you're absolutely right. I said boundary, but I don't mean the boundary of the district. And that's sort of part of what's mathematically so fun about this problem. I hate to use the word fun in the context of sort of such a problematic political practice. But let's face it, mathematicians, we love fun. We don't work on something unless it's fun to think about, even if it's really important. So this kind of hits both of those. So yeah, in some sense, part of what's mathematically so rich about this is you start out by thinking, oh, sure, it's a geometry problem because it's about the geometry of the districts. They shouldn't have like weird, funny looking shapes like two octopuses doing a square dance or something like that. And then you find out that with modern computing technology, you can make districts that are like grievously gerrymandered and look really nice. Ours in Wisconsin look fine. You could look at the map and you'd be like, I don't see anything funny here. You can't detect it with the naked eye anymore. So it's not about the geometry of the district. It's about, ready, we're going to get meta here. It's about the geometry of the space of all ways to district the state, which is a much more abstract thing. I mean, it's some incredibly vast collection of possible options of state maps. But that point is that that space too has a geometry. You can say this map is similar to that map. They're close. Or we're going to draw some boundaries and you can't go any farther in the direction of gerrymandering than this. So it's a, it's a higher and more abstract geometry. But there's lots of examples of things like that in the book. And you know, I, I put this at the end of the book because you sort of uh, start with simple things like the geometry of a family tree, which you probably, you know, people have a picture of like in their family Bible or whatever. It's this kind of geometry that we're already sort of inclined to think of as geometric, but doesn't have anything to do with like triangles drawn in the plane. It's more abstract than that. And then we kind of go up higher dimensional things, more abstract things. Oh, it's fun. I'm just having fun just thinking about it. (laughs) 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, you know, I, I picked up your book because I wanted to, to sort of understand the geometry of gerrymandering and how we can fix it. Because, and especially at this podcast, we're really interested in how science can inform policy and, and sort of help society. But then I got to local optimism. And to me, this went so far beyond politics. It just went to like virtually every decision I've ever made in my life. And I, I thought it was really sort of a new and compelling way to look at sort of how blind we are to different opportunities because of this local optimism. So tell us about local optimism. What is it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something I write about when I'm writing about AI, which you can think of as some kind of mechanization. And of course, me being me, I would say geometrization of the process of decision making, maybe even more meta than that, the process of kind of developing your strategies for making decisions. And you know, one reason I wanted to do this is because I think people treat AI like magic. They treat it some kind of like as some kind of oracular thing that sort of like only kind of like Elon Musk in a Merlin hat, like stirring his cauldron, like can possibly produce. And you just have to drink whatever comes out of the cauldron without knowing what it is. No, it's not like that at all. And in fact, the fundamental idea is actually pretty simple. The implementation, okay, complicated, but like fundamentally what you're doing whenever a machine is trying to devise some algorithm or strategy by machine learning. This is what it's doing. Ready? I'll tell you. You have something that you're doing. You ask yourself, what small change could I make to it that would improve the outcome I'm getting? And then you do that. Okay, having done that, now you have a new strategy. What small change could I make to my new strategy that would improve the outcomes I'm getting? Okay, you find one, you do that. And then you just keep on doing that. Literally, that's it. Okay, I just told you what machine learning is. <laughs> that is the idea. But what can happen and while I'm coming to your question, Indre, sorry, I know it may seem like I'm saying something else, but we're coming, we're almost there. Maybe you arrive at a point where no small change you can make can improve your situation. You're like, I look around in all directions. If you, if you metaphorize this as I do in the book, as like climbing a mountain, you're at the top of some little hill and you look around and everywhere around you is a downslope. And then you have two options. You might say, well, I did it. I'm at the summit. I climbed the whole mountain. But of course, you might not be. The peak might be far away and you just can't see it from where you are. You might have to go down to go back up. That's what's called a local optimum. You know, optimum just means it's like math ease for like 
the best, like the best possible situation. What you're trying to find is the global optimum, like the best possible situation out of all situations, the local optimum. And look what I'm, I'm doing geometry again, right? Whenever you say local versus global, it's a very geometric thing. The local optimum is like you're at the best situation among all the ones that are near you. And the kind of example I give in the book, which unfortunately is near and dear to me and may have to do with why I turned this book in four months late. That's not bad, actually. <laughs> yeah, I always I felt like really apologetic. And the publishers were like, you are so far from the most offending <laughs> author that we have. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always say like, you know, let's say your office is like a total wreck because there's sort of some huge pile of stuff that you have to deal with, some huge pile of physical papers that you sort of have to get rid of. And But you don't want to because maybe getting rid of those papers means you're admitting to yourself that there's some task that you kind of think that you want to do, but maybe you're conceding that you're actually not going to do. You're going to recycle all that paper and it's just not going to happen. Psychologically and emotionally painful. Okay, so here's the thing. On any given day, the process of starting that task and like addressing this stack of paper instead of ignoring it, is that going to make your day better or worse? Worse, right? You're not going to feel a sense of accomplishment. You're not going to feel a sense of progress. You're just going to feel depressed because you're engaging with the thing that you would rather avoid. On the other hand, that doesn't really mean that this situation where all this crap is piled on your desk, is that state of affairs really best possible? No, best possible is when you've actually dealt with it, but you have to go down in order to get up. And so I think the local optimum exactly models this state that you find yourself in and the state that a machine learning algorithm may sometimes find itself in when it's running and which you as the programmer may have to think of a way, how do I avoid getting stuck there? How do I find a way to kick myself out of it? But yeah, I think, you know, somehow always, it's amazing how whenever you're thinking about some purely geometric problem, like this problem of, you know, we would say in machine learning land, oh, my gradient descent got stuck in a local optimum, that it has some human analog. In this case, like the analog of procrastination, the analog of being sort of stuck in this procrastinatory loop where a small step is not going to be satisfying. And I just thought that was such an interesting kind of, and to me, like visual or spatial way of thinking about some of the big decisions we make in our lives, like why it's so hard sometimes to leave a job that you're pretty good at, that you, it's okay, because in order to get the job that is like the, the home run requires going back to school or taking a pay cut or rebuilding or something. And it's so hard for us to see that next peak when all of the options that that would are going to get us there have to we have to go down first. Exactly right. Because on any given day, quitting your job is going to suck for you, probably. <laughs> right. You're going to be like, oh, now I got to pay my rent. Yeah. Like I'm not, you know, I'm like with this partner and it's not like super amazing, but it's pretty good. And if we break up, I'm going to be super sad. And you know what I mean? Oh, do you want to bring them in on the you want to bring them in and we can all talk? <laughs> So I, I, this is metaf metaphorical. I'm actually, you know, my, no, no, not me. I'm fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. You know, but like, or like what? Yeah. I mean, sure. no. you know, why couples wait years to get divorced? You know, divorce is messy and hard and terrible. And, you know, yeah. And so like, it, it just made so much sense to me to sort of visually think about this and sort of maybe help people make some of these difficult decisions, take that first step when, you know, they know that it's, you know, it's not, tomorrow's not going to be better than today, but next year is going to be better than this year. And of course, the big challenge, and it's a challenge for people living their lives and making their life decisions in just the same way it's a challenge for an algorithm is the small step, you know, which one to take, you take the one that makes your life like a little bit better in the short term, the big step, you don't know which one to take. 
<laughs> right? You say, oh, I need to go down in order to go up. But you, if you choose the wrong direction, you might be going down in order to go further down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there might not be another peak over there. <laughs> yeah. So in some sense, you know, what is very often done in machine learning is, and this is going to sound crazy, but it works pretty well, is you take a big step chosen essentially a random. You just say, look, I'm going to kick the TV here and introduce some sort of like large disturbance and sort of see what happens, see if that gets me into a place where I can optimize without getting stuck. And I think, honestly, I think people do that in their lives as well. Like sometimes people quit their job without a new thing lined up because they're like, I'm just going to try something. I'm going to like get on a plane and like go to another country and see what I find there. I sort of shake my mind into a new place and sort of see what I discover. You know, in the book, I write about um, these oblique strategies cards, which I love, which is this... um, it's just this deck of cards with these sort of weird nomic slogans on them. And you're supposed to just, when you're stuck, you're just supposed to, I think like, you know, it's artists and musicians use it a lot. I think you're just supposed to sort of pull one out of the deck and try to do what it says. Even though the cards, you know, they say things like discard an axiom or draw a line and follow it. You know what I mean? They say things that it's not obvious. Like you kind of have to just like let it rest in your mind, but it's, it's sort of meant to be this mental equivalent of like, just take a big step in a random direction and see if that works better for you, which is a pretty scary thing to do. Yeah, but 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 really interesting when you think about it geometrically, because I think a lot of us think of it in sort of two dimensions where it's like it's either good or bad. But when you think about it as there's all these possibilities, I feel like that kind of opens you up to being more willing to take some of these risks. Yeah, and I love it. I mean, I think this idea of dimension is, again, like a very fundamental geometric idea, but it also kind of frees you when you realize that nothing about life is one-dimensional. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes we do get, as we sort of face these decisions, you know, we find ourselves thinking that there's a very binary choice, do this or don't do this, or maybe to make it more dimensional, move in this direction or move in the opposite direction, as if those are the only choices. But very few things are one-dimensional like that. Usually I can move forward or back, or I can move perpendicular to both of those and move to the left, or I can go straight up, or that's three, but there could be four or five. There's a lot of dimensions you actually have the freedom to move in. And sometimes we can focus on one and forget the rest. I mean, even the way we talk about life partners as soulmates, you know, assuming there's only one, uh, and then that can get us in a bind because we don't necessarily see that there's a whole set of possibilities. <laughs> but anyway, moving moving on from from that discussion, one of the th- uh, other sort of parts of your book that I kind of really got me thinking is this whole idea of the decisions we make around COVID. You know, we've all become armchair epidemiologists and we think we understand these things. But can you tell us a little bit about sort of how these kinds of models get made that project, you know, like, I think it was really at the very beginning of the pandemic, when people said, you know, there's, there was like, you know, maybe two deaths in the US. And people were saying, well, there's going to be a million deaths, or there's going to be a 1000 deaths. And these numbers were so vastly different. You know, talk to us a little bit about sort of what the modeling entails, like why we got it wrong. And like, what what we can do moving forward to, you know, try to make it a little bit more understandable or predictable. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. For people of a mathematical bent, the progress of COVID has been, to say the least, fairly humbling, right? Because you start out with simple ideas about how it might work. And those simple ideas kind of get knocked out one by one. And it was really interesting because I wrote this book. I mean, I didn't intend to write this much about mathematical epidemiology. My interest in the subject suddenly and dramatically increased like a little more than a year ago, like a lot of other people. Um, 
In some sense, the progress of the way I write about it kind of mirrors the way the subject developed. You start with these very simple models, this model of so-called exponential increase, also called geometric progression. So the geometry is right there, where there is some fixed amount of time and the number of cases doubles each week or doubles each month, if you're lucky, or something like that. All models start from that, but that's obviously too simplistic because, you know, there's a sort of a famous case of sort of somebody writing a paper where they said, like, this was right after 9-11, and they said, oh my gosh, if like the enemy released smallpox into America, there could be 77 trillion people infected with smallpox within a year. <laughs> okay, no, right? That's you know. Right. But that's what you do if you blindly extrapolate. So yeah, there's like a wonderful story where people start with very simple models that obviously don't reflect reality. And then sort of as I write about it in the book, I sort of like, I'm going through history writing about how they get more and more refined until you get the kind of models we use now, which in some sense roughly conform with reality. But you asked, why did lots of people get stuff wrong? And I'm going to answer that. You know, the metaphor I use in the book is that the modeling we do for disease, it's kind of like the physics of tennis. Like if I throw a tennis ball up in the air and like let it drop, physics is like really good at understanding exactly what path it's going to take, where it's going to be when. If I throw the ball up in the air and hit it, that's a lot harder, but physics can still do a lot. It can say, okay, you hit the ball with a certain amount of force and a certain amount of spin, and maybe I know something about the physics of the material of the ball itself, and you know, maybe it's not as perfect as just an unhit ball, but you can do something about predicting its flight. Okay, great. So we can do that. So we can, okay, now I'm going to put two tennis players on the court. Physics, like, tell me who's going to win the match. Nope, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> because now there's stuff going on. There's the physics, but there's also the human beings interacting with the physics, reacting to it and doing something based on the physics they see. And a real pandemic is a lot more like that. There's the basic dynamics of the disease, which we can really understand mathematically. I'm not going to say perfectly by no means, but you can really get some purchase on it. But then there's human beings in the aggregate reacting to that biological dynamics in this iterative way. The disease does something, humans react. The disease does something caused by the human reaction, then the humans react to that. That is not something there's going to be an equation for in a formula for. But that's the bad news. But the good news is it's not like the modeling is useless in the same way that the physics is not useless. Like somebody who plays tennis, if you are good at tennis, you actually have like a really good physical model of where the ball is going to go if you hit it a certain way. You don't want to throw that in the trash. You don't want to be without that. That is a fundamental part of playing tennis. So in the same way, in the end, and I had to think a lot about this and revise my own opinions as the pandemic went on. In the end, that's the way I see it, that these models are incredibly useful, but that doesn't mean they're an oracle. That doesn't mean they tell the future. That means they're kind of like understanding the fundamental physics of the situation and what might happen in response to a certain change in policy or change in behavior. But in the end, a huge heterogeneous global population of different people responding in different ways to the dynamics of the disease, it's not going to be a crystal ball. No chance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that we've learned over and over and over again is that like the models are based on the data that's put into them. But if if human beings make the different decisions on the basis of like what's happening in the moment, the models are going to be wrong. People react and you see that, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, people, something you saw very early in the pandemic is People are like, well, it's hard to see, you know, the, uh, the governor imposed the stay-at-home order, but like, 
you'd think there'd be sort of some sharp change in the course of the disease. Like, why wasn't there? Well, the answer is, if you actually look at data you can get from cell phones of like people moving around, people didn't wait for the governor to issue a stay-at-home order before they started staying at home, right? There's this kind of smooth change in behavior. And certainly the policies that people, that governments and corporate actors and everybody else makes, it certainly affects human behavior, but it doesn't determine human behavior. Humans make a lot of decisions on their own. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the the problem with this particular disease, the difficulty is that, you know, symptoms don't come up until, you know, many days, if not weeks after exposure. And so like, we're just not, we're just not built to see cause and effect and with that at that time scale. And so like, you know, we don't see these immediate, but I think we're getting better. I think people are generally getting better at understanding that like, you know, when there's a surge, you know, that this is going to be something that is going to have an upslope and a downslope. So I want to remind our listeners that Jordan Ellenberg's uh, new book, Shape the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else, you know, not not trying to be <laughs> too inclusive there, is now available at Booksellers Everywhere. And it really does talk about um, all of those things and everything else. Uh, it's really great. I have a question for you that that sort of has been that I've been thinking about recently. You know, this is about sign language. Sign language is something that people use to communicate in three dimensions. So it just made me wonder, like, and I <laughs> apologize to ask, you know, about this, but like the geometry of sign language, like what can you tell us about that? What a great question. And you've asked me to talk about something I know almost nothing about which is great. It's a temptation I have to resist to sound like I know anything about it. I'm like literally thinking about what to say right now. So that's like, a yeah. And I, I mean, it, you know, we can, we can skip it if you want, but like, I no, just, no, I want to talk about it. First, yeah, first like, of all, do you, do, do, do you speak sign language? Do you know stuff about this? I, I don't, I don't, but I've been, I've been spending a lot of time reading and thinking and watching about sort of the, the cultural, the, the sort of, you know, the fact that you can be poetic using sign language is something that I hadn't really thought about before I sort of took this deep dive and into it for another project. And like, but it started to make me wonder, because a lot of the times, I feel like mathematics has helped me figure out how to think. And if you're using sign language, essentially to think, you know, to, to it's not just about, you know, translating your thoughts, I think sometimes people who use sign language do actually use it to work out their thoughts. Like, what is that third dimension add to a person's ability to think about things? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just a question to pose. I, I don't know that there's an answer. but So I'll throw some stuff out there. And now you're going to see this is like how my thought process looks before I like write it down and make it all nice. So you're Perfect. seeing the raw material here. But like, you know, one thing I would say is, you know, you would love my colleague, Martha Alibali, who's a psychologist here at Wisconsin. You would love having her on, actually. She is a psychologist of gesture. That's one of the things that she studies. She studies exactly how children use gesture as a form of embodied thinking as like part of their way of thinking about math. And so she, you know, takes little kids and like watches them do geometry problems and like sees like how does what they do with their hands affect, like not just how does it affect their thought, but how is it part of their thought? This is like fascinating, fascinating stuff. So this is a thing that there are like specialists in, like like psychologists who study exactly this. Um, I'm going to send you her name after we talk. But I would also say, you know, one thing I write about in the book First of all, there's like a lot of poetry in the book for some reason. Like there's a lot of intersections between math and poetry since you bring it up. But also I just write about, you know, the geometry of words, this idea that words, like anything else, or we have the idea that two words are close to each other, which might mean they're close in their meaning. It might mean they're close in their sound, like phonetically. But there's a lot, I mean, a lot of the interesting work in machine translation and in machine language production 
implicitly or explicitly has to do with this idea that words have their own geometry. Okay, now take something like ASL, where there's a literal geometry, like the word uttering it. To utter it, you need to trace out a path in physical space. What's the relation between that literal spatial geometry and the abstract geometry of the word in kind of some kind of semantic space? Okay, I have no idea. It's a question. But um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I maybe hopefully that in your next book, <laughs> we can, this might pique some of your interest because I, I, I do think that there is like, you know, as we think about shapes and, and geometry, I think there is also this added element where we are actually more spatial than we think. You know what I mean? Like that we write in two dimensions, you know, our retina is two dimensional, but yet like there's this, all this spatial stuff that as you have already mentioned is just inherent in how we talk in so many different ways about boundaries and nearness and closeness and other things. So it just got me wondering, like, you know, for a person that that lives in that world who has essentially learned how to communicate using using their hands, using these gestures, what does it mean to them to have this space? I mean, you must you must know dancers, right? Because you're from like opera world. Yeah. So do you think I mean, those are people who are like, I presume, like much more conscious about their motion through space than you or I. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, I wonder about how their brains work, too. Like, how is it that they model the world? But anyway, super interesting. So that I know that was that was a tough question to kind of end with. But I guess I what I would like you to, to, to leave us with is we've kind of understood how geometry can play a role in these different various things like politics and AI and even our own decision making about sort of what we should do next. So what do you think is the effective way of teaching our children geometry? Oh, that's a great question. And I certainly think school geometry has come a long way from the days when we asked children to like recite Euclid's propositions by rote. But there is no question that for a lot of kids, it's still very formal. And I think it's that can be a hard sell. You know, one thing I've learned as a teacher, I mean, I've now been a teacher for, gosh, like 20 years. And I think I started as a younger teacher. Um, and you teach too, right? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. So, so you, I mean, at least when I was starting out, I was like, I got to figure out the right way to do this. It's kind of analogous to like, what's the right way to draw the maps, right? And over time, I've come to feel students are really different from each other. There's not like a single right way that only if I, only if I say these right words in the right order, that's like the perfect math lecture. It doesn't even have to be a lecture, right? The perfect mode of delivering teaching. I don't think there is any perfect way. I think there are definitely kids who absolutely respond really well to the sort of classical, very formalistic Euclidean style. And and actually, my book is filled with people having these kind of conversion experiences from Abraham Lincoln to Thomas Hobbes, the political philosopher, you know, all kinds of people who like, open Euclid and was like, oh my God, this guy gets it. Like, this is what I want to do. And there's other people, great mathematicians like James Sylvester, this kind of, you know, grand eccentric of 19th century British math, who were like, ugh, why are we like doing Euclid in the classroom when we should be talking about physics and talking about things moving in space and talking about the physical world, not these freaking abstract, perfect circles that don't even exist. So I think this is going to be kind of a non-answer that you're going to think is kind of a punt, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's what I believe that it just depends on your kid. You got to figure out what your kid responds to. And that's going to involve, you know, so it might be that the way they do it in school is exactly what they respond to, which is too for, for plenty of kids. Otherwise, we still wouldn't be doing it. It may be that they like games like Tangrams better. 
um, you know, where you're sort of like, that's a very geometric kind of thing to do. And maybe that they like ruler and compass constructions, which are not really popular in the school curriculum anymore, but are like kind of like a fun challenge. It may be that they like, I don't know, like spirograph or like, I mean, there's so much geometric stuff. And to be quite honest with you, it may be that the logic of deduction they may like coming to from some way other than formal geometry. They might like playing Mastermind. Do you ever play that when you were a kid? You know that game? Yeah, it's yeah. Four colored pegs. That is like an ultimate game of deduction where you're like, exactly what can I deduce from this like very limited amount of information in front of me? Just like Euclid, but not about Euclid, not about triangles or circles. That's training your mind in the same skills. Maybe I guess what a lot of the things I'm saying have in common is that I, I'm mentioning a lot of games because I do think that the spirit of play is inseparable from the true spirit of mathematics. And, you know, kids love to play. And I think it's actually pretty hard for kids to learn things if that element of play is not there. When we give them things, when we're teaching them to read, we give them things that are fun to read. We don't ask them to read the dictionary. I mean, I guess we could, (laughs) but like we don't, right? We give them things that there's going to be some sense of playfulness and fun in reading. And I do kind of think that we have to find that for math as well. But what it is is going to be different for each kid. Just like what books are fun is like really different for each kid. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I actually ended up really liking geometry is because it felt like a game. Like there was a solution. I knew I was going to get there. I had a goal. You know, it wasn't going to leave me hanging. (laughs) like so many other aspects of life. But you know, another person might say, somebody already knows the answer. So why am I working on this? You know, that would be (laughs) equally valid and people's temperaments are just different. So, you know, we got to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. (laughs) Which has a geometric shape. (laughs) Yes. Calculate. Jordan Ellenberg, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me on. This is really fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, This episode was edited by Riley Byrne. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>